This is God's Word, Revelation 22, beginning in verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, next Sunday, we'll start a new series of sermons uh, on the book of Habakkuk. We'll be talking about trusting God with our troubled hearts and dealing with issues of doubt and struggle and wrestling with maybe difficult things in life, difficult things in God's Word. But today, we return to the end of Revelation one more time. This is a bonus episode. If you listen to podcasts, there's usually a series of episodes, and then it ends, and then there's a lot of unused material that gets put into bonus episodes later. Well, I wanted something to focus on in the beginning of the new year. I wanted to encourage you in a practical way, so I thought I'm going to return to this passage once again and look at specifically at how this passage deals with God's Word and our engagement with God's Word. So my goal is, is very simple today. I would like us to devote ourselves to the reading and obeying of the Bible in this new year. For some, it would mean establishing a habit, establishing a daily reading and studying habit. For others, it may mean going deeper and uh, maybe studying or memorizing or meditating on Scripture, adding some disciplines. Yet for others, it means just remaining consistent and persevering, continuing to read, continuing to apply Scripture. And of course, for everyone, it means conforming our lives to what Scripture teaches. We all need to continue to obey the Word of God. So this last chapter of the Bible, 
has a lot to say about our engagement with the message of Revelation in particular, but more broadly with the Bible as a whole. So I'd like us to look at seven points of application. Some of them I'll go through very quickly and others I'll, I'll dwell on for a little bit. There are seven points of application. Number one, trust the Word. Trust the Word. The angel says to John in verse 6, these words, so this revelation, what we've read in the book of Revelation, what we read in the Bible, these words are trustworthy and true. They're trustworthy and true. The words spoken by God to us and recorded in the Bible are trustworthy and true. Now, last week we noted that the same phrase translated as trustworthy and true is used of Jesus himself in Revelation 19.11, translated there as faithful and true. As Jesus is faithful and true, so are his words. God's words are true and to be trusted because God is true and he is to be trusted. And as we trust him, we trust what he says. And as we trust what he says, we learn to trust him more and more. The English Puritans describe the Bible as the light to our paths, the key of the kingdom of heaven, our comfort in affliction, our shield and sword against Satan, the school of all wisdom, the glass wherein we behold God's face, the testimony of His favor, and the only food and nourishment of our souls. I wonder if you resonate with this description, if you would agree with them and say, this is what the Bible is to me. We, we trust the Bible in very practical terms. You know, it's, it's one thing to say, well, we're a Bible church, we love the Bible, we believe in the Bible, but it's different when you say, I trust the Bible. I trust it in, in very specific circumstances, and I trust specific passages and, and teachings of the Bible. So if we follow this description of the, the Puritans of what the Bible is, that means that we practically trust the Bible to show us the way and to guide us. That means the Bible tells us what to do, how to make decisions, which decisions to make. It means that we trust the Bible to bring us into the kingdom of heaven. It's the key to the kingdom. So the Bible tells us how we are to participate in God's kingdom. That means that we trust the Bible to bring comfort in suffering and in affliction. We go to Scripture and we actually are comforted and encouraged when we suffer and when we hurt. We trust the Bible to protect us against the enemy. It becomes our shield and our sword when accusations come, when temptations come. We respond with Scripture. That means that we trust the Bible to teach us and to make us wise. So we think that wisdom comes from God and we actually draw wisdom from the Scriptures. That means that we trust the Bible to show us God as He really is. So our idea of God comes from His Word. It doesn't come from our imagination. It comes from His own revelation. That means that we trust the Bible to assure us and, and affirm us in God's grace. When we forget, when we doubt His grace, the Bible tells us He does love us. His favor is on us. That means that we trust the Bible to sustain us spiritually, that the, 
the channel through which life comes to us and sustains us and, and makes us live spiritually is from His Word, goes through it. That's what it means to trust it. We're talking in, in very practical terms. is reading this book, applying this book, and trusting that what it says is true and living according to it. Do you trust it? Do you trust the Bible? Now, a good diagnostic question is to ask ourselves, do I trust the Bible more than? And then fill it in, fill the blank in. Do I trust the Bible more than, for example, more than what I read online? Do I trust the Bible more than what I read online? That's an uncomfortable question for some of us. Do I trust the Bible more than what my friends tell me? Does what God says matters more to me than what my friends say about me? Do I trust the Bible more than I trust my anxious heart? So I take the Scriptures and I say, okay, I feel, I feel this anxiety, but there's peace in the Word. And so I'm reorienting myself and I'm, I'm, I'm trusting this book. And I'm trying to conform my emotions to that. Do I trust the Bible more than my guilty conscience when my conscience condemns me? Do I go to Scripture and I read that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and I trust that and I live according to that? Not living in guilt, but living in, in peace with God and freedom of forgiveness? Do I trust the Bible more than my hurting body? These are searching questions, and we have to wrestle with this because it's easy to say, well, I believe the Bible. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I go to a Bible church. But do we actually trust it? Day by day, moment by moment, building our life on this book. So that's one. Trust the Word. Second, keep the Word. Keep the Word. Look at verse 7. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. What does it mean to keep the Word? Well, it means to observe it, to obey it, to be changed by it. The angel has communicated the message, and now he says, keep it, be shaped by it, live according to it, don't move past it, don't forget it, don't ignore it, don't neglect it, but now actually bring your life in conformity to it. James gives us a great illustration of that in James chapter 1, verse 22. He says, but the doers of the word, be the doers, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The blessing is in the obeying of God's word. And not just simply hearing it, but obeying it. Just as the point of looking at yourself in the mirror is not simply to see what you look like, but to see if you need to brush your hair or fix your shirt or wash your face, that's why you're looking at yourself in the mirror. 
And so blessed is the one whose life is shaped by God's Word. Now, my wife will tell you that when I go shopping, I often end up not buying anything. And so she has learned to, to say, well, Sergey goes shopping, and now he knows that what he needs is there. So he's discovered where it is. He knows how much it costs, but he doesn't get it. That's not how you're supposed to do it, I'm learning. You're supposed to find it and get it, not just find it and say, well, it's good, it's good. I, know, I know where it is, I know it's there. You're supposed to get it. So we go to Scripture, and we say, okay, I know this truth is here. I read it, I understand it, now I have to get it. I have to retrieve it. I have to put it into practice. I have to apply it. I can't just leave it here. I have to get it. I have to pick it up, and I have to put it into practice. Are you familiar with the blessing of keeping God's Word? Does Scripture shape your life? Does it affect your politics, your sexuality, your money, your relationships? Is it actually something that when you look at Scripture, you notice things about yourself, about your life that need to be changed, and so then you change them? You make adjustments. That's what it means to keep the Word. And there's blessing in it because we change and we become more like Jesus. Thirdly, focus on the Word. Focus on the Word and not on the teacher of the Word. Now I was going to say, listen to me now, but I can't say that because I want you to focus on the Word. I want you to bypass me and I want you to go past the messenger and see what the Word says. Now look at verses 9 and 10. John, John the apostle, the one who, who was close to Jesus, whom Jesus loved, the one who has now experienced these, these tremendous visions of God's revelation, this, this John is tempted now to worship the messenger. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. He knows the word. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, the angel says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. What is, what is he saying? He's saying, don't think I am special. Don't focus on me. I'm just like any other messenger. I'm just like the prophets. I'm just like anybody who keeps the word, who hears and obeys the word. Don't worship me, worship God. But if John can give in to this kind of temptation, I think we're all prone to that. He worships the messenger. The angel immediately corrects him. And so we too must be corrected in this respect. The word comes from God and not from the angel or another messenger. And it must be heard and obeyed because it comes from God and not because of who speaks it to you. In the last couple of years, uh, it seems to me that in the last couple of years there, there have been more high-profile scandals in the evangelical world. And several prominent Christian leaders were exposed as power-hungry hypocrites who took advantage of their followers, sometimes in incredibly wicked ways. 
But perhaps the most disturbing aspect of those stories is that some people in their organizations and their ministries and their churches try to cover up what was happening and protected them and, and try to, to, to control the damage so that the ministry can continue. And one justification that is often used in, in such circumstances is that a scandal would damage the fruitfulness of the ministry. So we need to protect the messenger because the messenger is essential to the spread of the message. So we're going to try to reject and, and downplay or, or argue with or discredit anybody who will criticize the messenger, rightly or wrongly. But the angel in our passage is very clear. He says messengers are not special, even if they're angelic. Just fellow servants, just like the prophets, just like pastors, just like preachers, just like Sunday school teachers, just like fathers and mothers in the home. We're all on the same plane here. We, we're all just teaching what God says. We are not special. We are not to be protected. We are not to be put in a special category and somehow ministry depends on us. It's God's word. Messengers are not special. It's a mistake to think that this ministry can only go on if we have this person in charge. If only we can just get rid of all the criticism towards this person and we can just prop him up, then everything will be great and we'll have spiritual fruit. That's not how fruitfulness happens. That's pretend fruit. Now, it's true that God does use some leaders in remarkable ways. By his, by his grace. It's often inexplicable to the human mind why a certain person is chosen to be a fruitful minister and others aren't. It often has nothing to do with their natural gifts or their experiences. It's just God's grace. But ultimately, it's never the messenger that changes people's lives. It always is the message. It always is God's word. That's where power and life are. Ministries and churches built on the personality and giftedness of the messenger can fall apart overnight almost, leaving crowds of disillusioned and despairing people. Now, let me tell you about Carl Radke. Carl is now 92 years old, by my calculations, and he spent about 90 of those years as part of Christian Fellowship Free Church in Chicago, where I had the privilege of serving as pastor for eight of those 90 years of Carl's service. The church actually started in his house. His parents started the church. He was born into the church, literally, in, in his house. And when the church purchased a building in the neighborhood, he remained a faithful member, became an elder, was an elder at times, but was just a regular church person. And I remember when uh, I came to the church and we were discussing, in the beginning of my ministry, we were discussing a new vision for the church. Any pastor comes to a church and we want to do a new vision. <laughs> we want to change things. We want to clarify things. And so I was one of those. And so I came. And I remember Carl was on the elder board at the time and, and we were talking. And I remember just getting the sense from him that he had had this conversation several times before with other pastors. 
Now, he was, he was very encouraging. He was very supportive of me. Um, and yet, I'm sure he remembered all the pastors before me who came with their ideas and their vision statements, complete with the Oxford comma and all that needs to be in the statement of a new vision for the church. He also knew that there will be another pastor after me, and he will likely still be in the church and I won't be, which is exactly what happened eight years later. It was another guy with another vision, and Carl was still on that elder board. When I got to know Carl, I realized that he participated in ministry not because I asked him to, because the pastor said, or because I motivated him in a special way, or I inspired him, or I cast this vision from the pulpit that he just couldn't resist participating in. I learned that he was generous because the Bible told him to be generous. And no matter how many sermons he heard on giving, he ultimately obeyed God and his word. He loved others not because I told the church to pursue community and do life together, but because he loved people because his Lord commanded him to to love people through his word. He lived a certain way because God told him to live a certain way, and he knew God and he knew his word. And while he was incredibly encouraging and supportive of me, his life wasn't shaped by my teaching as such. Now, he responded to some of my sermons, no question, he was attentive, and, and he, he checked what I said with, with the Word. He was an active listener, and, and he applied what we taught. But ultimately, ultimately, he was shaped by the teaching of the Word, whichever channel it came through. He focused on the Word and not on the teacher of the Word. To me, that's incredibly encouraging. That's what I want. As a pastor, that's what I want. I want, I want to lead you to the Word. And if I'm a channel to that, great. If I'm not, that's okay. You need to get to the Word. Because you need to focus on, because that's where life and power are. Amen. There's a great story told about Charles Spurgeon. Arguably one of the, well, not even arguably, one of the most effective preachers, one of the most fruitful evangelists in the history of the church. Uh, there was a time he was supposed to preach somewhere at another church, and he was late, and his grandfather, who was also a preacher, was supposed to introduce him. Well, as he was introducing him, Spurgeon wasn't there, and so as a preacher, he just started the sermon. And so when Spurgeon showed up, he filled him in. He said, I'm on point one. Here are the next two points coming up, and so why don't you come and continue the sermon? And this is how he introduced Charles Spurgeon. He said, here's my grandson, he may preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel. He can preach it better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel. Fourth application point, share the word. Share the word. Verse 10, And he said to me, the angel says to John, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now, this is an allusion to Daniel 12, where Daniel the prophet is, is told that the words of the prophecy that he received were to be sealed for a time. They were supposed to be kind of be kept secret until those things 
were going to happen. However, John is commanded not to seal the prophecy of Revelation because the time is near. Jesus is coming soon. The next redemptive event is the return of Jesus. So, so he's told not to keep those words to himself. And so we are commanded to share God's words with others. We're supposed to share what we're learning from God's Word. We're supposed to take this and give it to other people. Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, observes that the word he had shared with them has now spread all over the surrounding areas. 1 Thessalonians 1.8, he says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. This is a remarkable statement. Paul says, I don't need to go to your neighborhoods anymore. You spread the word. There's no need for a missionary where you are, where your church is. No missionaries are needed to be sent to Macedonia and Achaia because the Christians there did not seal up the word, but shared it with everyone. What a day it would be when we would say, listen, we, we don't need any more Christians in North County. We, we've got it covered. The word is spreading. All the Christians here are active. We're serving our neighbors. We're speaking the truth in love. And the word is known here. Doesn't mean everybody believes. Doesn't mean everybody responds positively. But the word is out there. It's not been sealed up. We don't need missionaries. We've got it. I'd like for our church to keep our focus on evangelism in this new year. That was our major emphasis last year, especially in the fall and winter season. I'd like us to keep praying for God to stir up in our hearts the desire to share the gospel with our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our schoolmates, our family members. I'd actually like to ask you to keep me accountable in that. And I mean in my personal evangelism. I've wrestled with that. It's easy for me to spend time with you. Most of you are lovely people. Very enjoyable to be around. And it's easy to focus on, on this ministry, on teaching, on, on preaching, on counseling, on, on praying for you. But I realize that I also need to be connecting with unbelievers outside of my world, I need to be sharing the gospel with those that don't come to my church and don't come to hear me speak to them, but I need to go to them. So, seriously, would you please ask me several times in the course of this year how I am doing with that? Have I found ways into my community? Have I found connections with other people in my neighborhood or, or whatever circles that I can easily enter to share the gospel with them? Number five, hear the word together. Hear the word together. Experience God's word together with other believers. Verse 16 tells us that the message of Jesus is for the churches. For the churches. It's not just for individuals, but it's for the churches. In other words, the word of God is not just to be experienced individually, me and God and his word, but also together. It's us and God and his word. Now, this is part of the reason for church attendance and church involvement and belonging to various communities and groups of Christians. 
God speaks to his people when we gather to hear his word. This is, this is an amazing thing, and I, and I will tell you from my perspective, I pray when I prepare, I pray that God would speak through me to you, to you specific people, not, not in general, but to specific people in our congregation, specific people in our community. I often think of you, specific situations, specific struggles, specific joys that we experience as a church, and I want God's Word to speak to that, because God is working here in our community, and God speaks into this particular community, which is why it's so important to know each other and to serve together and to be together and consistently pursue God's Word together. Now, applications are clear here. Do a Bible reading plan with other people, you know. New Year, many people are starting uh, reading Bible in a year or New Testament in a year or whatever. Many people are doing that. Do it with other people. There's accountability. There's encouragement that comes through that. Join a Bible study if you're not part of one. Join a small group. Hear the word preached on Sunday mornings consistently. Join a Navigator 2-7 group when we start another one. Think of ways to experience God's word together with other people. Number six, don't change the word. Don't change the word. Verses 18 and 19. And here we have a solemn warning. This is, this is important. Now notice the kind of language that, that is used here. Verse 18 says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. That's all of us. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Don't mess with God's word. Don't mess with the Bible. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. It's by this word that we are judged. God says that those who don't take this word in faith, that try to change it, try to alter it, ultimately don't have anything to stand on. And those who take all of it belong in the city. Now, it's, it's the whole thing. It's the whole message. It's not adjustable. It's not something that we can change. We either accept it as the whole thing or we reject it. We can't change it. Apostle Paul, speaking to the elders of the Ephesian church in Acts 20, says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He says, I, I didn't try to change the word. I didn't try to pick different parts of the word. I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He taught all the doctrines of Scripture, whether they sounded right to the hearers or not, whether they were popular or not. He taught from all parts of the Bible, all different books of the Bible, to give a complete picture of God's revelation. I think we would do well to follow Paul's example today. It's upsetting to hear a pastor say that we should unhitch our teaching from the Old Testament concepts and narratives because the Old Testament is a stumbling block 
to people's faith. It's upsetting to hear a pastor say that. Say, let's not focus on the Old Testament because that is confusing and puzzling to people and it pushes them away from Jesus. So let's just focus on the other parts of the Bible. And let's just leave that behind. It's just unnecessary baggage for people. It's upsetting to hear a seminary professor tell his students to avoid preaching on Romans 9 because it's divisive. These are real examples. Pastors, seminary professors saying, don't do this part of the Bible. Don't teach from here. Teach from other passages. Now, what's going on here? Why, why do we do that? Why do we say that? Why do we choose certain parts of the Bible over others? Why do we downplay or neglect or ignore certain parts of the Bible? The answer is, to put it quite frankly to you, is pride. It's, it's just pride. Because we think that we know better than God. We think that our understanding of the culture is so nuanced, it's, it, there's such an insight into what's going on around us that we have that we can rearrange God's canon. That we can just say, well, these parts are more important than the other parts. And maybe we don't need to worry about that because that's not culturally acceptable. We think that we understand the struggles of the human heart better than God does. And so we're only going to apply these remedies, but not those. Well, God gave us the Bible. That's what God did. God gave us the whole book. Because God knows that all these different pieces, all these different parts, all the different bits, however antiquated we think they are, however puzzling we think they are, but all these pieces, all these components of this book are important to us. Because God knows our hearts. He knows the remedies that we need. He knows our circumstances. He knows our struggles. And so he gives us the book. And whatever he decided to put in the book is good for us. It's edifying for us. It's for our instruction. It's for our encouragement. It's for our correction. Whatever is in the Bible is necessary. It's good. And it's helpful to God's people. And so in humility, we need to come to the Bible and say, I'm going to learn to love every bit of it. And so I will no longer say, oh, really don't like that part. <laughs> that part is really boring. This part, I don't understand that part. I wish that part wasn't part of the Bible. I've said that. That's pride. It's putting myself in the position of the editor of the Bible. But God is the author and the editor. He gave us the book. This is a complete book. And we need to take all of it without changing it. And finally, the seventh application point. Believe the word. Believe the word. This is how Revelation and the whole Bible ends. Verses 20, 21. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The book ends on Jesus and his grace. Why? Because it is the essence of God's word to us. The message, 
the essence, the central part, the main thing of the Bible is Jesus and His grace. There's no accident, and, and Jay prayed it in his prayers, no accident that Jesus is called the Word. He comes as the embodiment of that message of grace to us. And so all of Scripture is ultimately is about Jesus and about His grace. And so for us to believe the Bible means to believe in Jesus, means to appropriate His grace. For us to say that I believe the Bible, I'm a Bible person, it also means, and you can't, you can't unhitch it, you can't separate those two. If I believe the Bible, I believe Jesus. If I don't believe Jesus, I don't believe in the Bible. And if I believe in Jesus, I believe in His grace, I believe in His message, I, I accept all of His teaching. Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, came to give us God's grace. Now, even in our passage, we see the emphasis on who Jesus is. Verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 16, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. We are told over and over again in just this, this short passage that He is coming back. He is coming. The point of this prophecy is that He is coming. We are to prepare for Him. We're waiting for Him to come back. This is not just to figure out what's going on in the Middle East. This is so we would be prepared for Jesus. And so as you read Revelation, your heart becomes open to Him. And so you believe in Him more, and you're prepared to when He returns. And we are called to come to Him, come to Him, to quench our thirst with His water of life offered to us by grace. He says, you don't need to bring money. You don't need to bring your good works. You don't need to bring your religious observance. You don't need to bring any of your accomplishments. You just come as a thirsty person. You come as a poor person with no money, and I will give you life. That's the point of the Bible. And so if we don't accept that, if our heart isn't moved toward Jesus, if we're not embracing His grace, if we're not running to Him in love with Him, we're missing what the Bible teaches. And so for us to believe this book is to believe in Jesus and His grace. Do you remember the Lord Himself rebuking the religious Bible readers of His day? In John 5, verse 39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. There are people who read the Bible, who know the Bible, who don't know Jesus. And that means they don't really read the Bible. They don't really apply the Bible. They don't really know the Bible. Because if you miss Jesus in the Bible, you missed the whole thing. The Bible is meant to lead you to Him, lead you to Jesus. So do you know Him? Do you love Him? Do you trust Him? That's the challenge of the Bible. I recently read a conversion story of a lady by the name of Vanitha Rendell Risner. who's in Christianity Today. And, and she describes how it, at the age of 16... She was encouraged by a Christian friend to read the Bible, and so 
one time she decided, as she put it, to give God a chance. It's all very cute when we think about, <laughs> about our conversions in those terms. I gave God a chance. Very quickly we realize who, who gives whom a chance here. So she decided in, in, uh, in just this desperate moment to give God a chance and read the Bible. So she opened the Bible to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John and instantly was drawn to the story of the man born blind. Now you see, Risner suffered from the effects of polio that she had contracted as an infant in India. And in this passage, she finally, after years of anger towards God, after years of this internal struggle, after years of pretending things were fine when things weren't, she finally realized that her disability had a purpose. So that the works of God might be displayed in her. Not that just struck her, that God's word speaking into her circumstances, her life, things she struggled with. She kept reading and found that the story of Lazarus resonated with her as well. God was speaking to her again through a different story, a different passage of Scripture, but into her circumstances. And then she saw herself in the Pharisees' love of human praise and Jesus' rebuke of that and saying, you love human praise more than you love the praise of God. She resonated with that because she was pretending. And the Bible began to shape her world. She writes, I felt known, understood, and unconditionally loved. A combination that simultaneously comforted and terrified me. Overcome with excitement and emotion, I knelt by the side of my bed and committed my life to Christ. She reads the Bible, and she runs to Jesus. The Bible speaks into her life, into her heart, into her circumstances, and she gives her life to Jesus. That's the point. She believed the Bible, and she met Jesus. Have you met him? Have you met Jesus? Jesus.